Good morning. There we are. If you would, take your Bible and turn to 1 John chapter 5 again. Last week we began our study, the attributes of God, by looking at His glory, understanding that glory is the essence of who God is. Everything about Him is glorious. It is uh, the encapsulation of all of His attributes. And we discussed the reality that um, Christ has the essential glory that the Father and the Son have, but, they all, but Jesus also exudes a personal glory. A particular glory that belongs to Him alone because He is truly God and truly man. And then third, that Christ possesses a mediatorial glory in that He pours His giftings and His grace into the church in such a way that His glory is known through the church. What we find is that in the Godhead, everything has a weight of glory. And we find that in the final analysis, the glory that we all long for is not a glory that we can get from our neighbor, but it is one that only God can bestow. It is His unmerited kindness and favor. Today, I want us to turn to another attribute. But I don't want to just flip from attribute to attribute and go on in a series. I want us to remember John and his writings and our anchoring point here in this text. John starts in verse 13 in his closing of his letter to you and I that we've studied for many Sundays. And he writes saying that he's, he's, he's writing to us that we would know that we have eternal life. And he concludes in verse 21 by admonish, admonishing us to keep ourselves from idols. And my argument would be that the greatest way to keep from idolatry is to continue to grow in an understanding of who the living God really is. Amen. So if you would, with that in mind... Stand to your feet as we do honor the reading of God's Word poured out by His Spirit. John writing to you and I again this morning under the inspiration and the weight of our glorious God, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of Him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin. But there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But but he who has been born of God protects him and the evil one doesn't touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 
And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Do you pray with me? Father God, we bow in Your presence this morning, acknowledging the great weight of our sin and acknowledging that we are so prone to idolatry. So might You set us free from the shackles of our rebellion as we cling to the dust and give our hearts a greater understanding of Your glory this morning. Might we worship You more in spirit and in truth as we go from this place. In Christ's name, Amen. You may be seated. we consider today God's goodness as His attribute, let us do it acknowledging that our idolatry, our position of heart, is such that we constantly cling to things in this earth that promise to be good, but in fact never deliver, deliver on that promise. Uh, we cherish our idols. We serve them. We see them as being something that will give us ultimate fulfillment. And these can be good things. Our family, our job, our marriage. We can turn anything into an idol when we believe that the ultimate good that we can receive comes from something that God has given us as a gift instead of from God himself. The problem with our idols and the perceived goodness that they level in our direction is they always fail to deliver the moral quality of the goodness that can only be found in God. Goodness is the chief of all of God's moral attributes. The, the goodness of God points to the fact that all that He does and that all that He is is of moral and ethical excellence. Now, this isn't a subjective goodness. When we talk about today the goodness of God as His attribute, His goodness, and we should praise God for this, does not bend to our subjective inspection. Rather, our inspection of God's goodness must give way to who He declares Himself to actually be. You see, the fact is, the goodness of God is often at odds with the way we feel. God will pour out His wrath on unregenerate people who refuse to praise Him. And there's an entire generation of people at work today who will say, well, that's not good. But what they do in declaring an argument like that is that their own morality is twisted and depraved. It is not the goodness of God that is faulty. Repeatedly, there is this charge that a good God would never judge, would never bring condemnation, would never do anything that would bring frustration to man. And that may be true. Unless that judgment, unless that dealing with man by pouring out His wrath is in fact goodness. So if God says that that's what He's going to do, we need to reframe the way that we think instead of arguing 
with what the Word of God declares about God in His judgment and in His goodness. See, we don't have to look far in the narrative of redemption to see fallen man questioning the goodness of God. At the basis of our idolatry is a heart that questions whether or not God is good. When John says, little children, beloved, dear people, sweet church, keep yourself from idols. John writes, knowing that we are constantly deceived, duped into believing that God has given us something less than all of His moral and ethical goodness, providentially. And we find here in Exodus chapter 32, right after, think about this now in context, the people of God have been delivered from their Egyptian captors. They have seen God work on their behalf to bring them to a position of deliverance. And yet, this is where we find them in Exodus chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves around Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who has brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And so Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are on your ears, of the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. Again, all of the idolatry that we experience and that we perpetrate against God is really a, a questioning of God's goodness to us. And isn't it interesting? That here we find Aaron being asked by the people, make us something we're comfortable with to worship. And there are some people who would say, yeah, but Jay, that's not something that moderns struggle with. They would never do that. I promise you it happens every single Sunday morning in almost every church. Preacher, preach to us a God of our own liking. Don't preach to us the God of the Bible who would condemn us. Don't preach to us the God of the Bible who's going to deal with sin. Just give us a God who will rah-rah us into having a little bit better of a life in the here and now. Do You see how we do subtle idolatry and we're shifting in the same way that we find here? We go on in Exodus chapter 32 and we find the Bible records this. And, all the, and the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and that I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But instead of God pouring out His indignation and His wrath upon the people of Israel, which they rightly deserved for having been... I mean, think about it. They've just been delivered from Egyptian captivity. And what is their first national act? Give us an idol. John's not writing at the end of his letter with a misconception of who humanity really is. John has marinated in all of the Scriptures, in all of the history of God's people, and he knows that by nature we are idolaters. But Moses, here we find, instead of just saying, okay, God, get them, 
Moses is moved by the Spirit of God to pray for the people of Israel and something altogether amazing happens. And this is what we find in Exodus chapter 33 and what we spoke of last week in speaking of the glory of God. Starting in verse 18, Moses said to God as as he's interceding for the nation of Israel, he says, God, please show me your glory. And God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim to you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. In an act of sheer goodness, God moves Moses to pray, and instead of the wrath of God being poured out on the nation, which would have been good had he done it, God chooses to to display His goodness primarily in two ways to the nation. And it is described here in the terms His grace and His mercy. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will be merciful to those I will be merciful. The connection between chapter 32 and 33 reveals to us that the goodness of God is contained in all that He does in redeeming His people. So as we're beginning to get our minds around what is the goodness of God, let us be reminded that the way primarily that God reveals in the early pages of redemptive history that He will display His goodness is in His grace and His mercy. Stephen Sharnock, who If you want to read about the goodness of God, the brother has written 129 pages. um, And I think every argument about the goodness of God under the sun can be found there. And Sharnock says this about the goodness of God. God's goodness is the brightness and the loveliness of our majestical Creator. To fancy a God without it is to fancy a miserable, scanty, narrow-hearted, savage God and so an unlovely and and horrible being. For He is not a God that is not good. Divine goodness really can, if we think about it in terms of like if there was a diamond and you, you kind of turn the diamond and you look at it from different angles to capture different glimpses, really all of God's attributes can again, um, and this goes to the simplicity of God, but uh, can be uh, labeled as good. But there really are three primary uh, aspects or angles from which we gaze at the goodness of God. And we're going to focus today on the mercy and grace, uh, which is kind of the first angle. We, we can see in His moral qualities, his, his mercy, His grace, His patience, His love in forgiving the sins of many, that our God is good. God deserve, we deserve the, the wrath of God, but instead we get the mercy and the grace and the patience and the love of a God who is good. Second, His justice and His righteousness are kind of the second fashion, uh, facet that He is just and He is righteous and so He will punish sin. And that is good. And then third, His affections, His moving of zeal for His own worship. Not only is God merciful and gracious and patient and loving in His forgiveness, and not only is He just and righteous in executing judgment against sin, but our God has a, a passion, a zeal, an affection that His name would be made great in the earth for His glory because it is the greatest thing that fallen humanity can get. And He will not relent 
in one small step to reveal to His church the need for worship. Today, again, I want us to primarily consider God's goodness in light of His mercy and His grace. God's goodness, again, being seen in all that He does. God exhibited His goodness in the work of creation. He shows it upon His people so that they may marvel at His great goodness. God continually creates and He steps back and He says, it is good. God's disposition is to generously give good gifts to us. He doesn't suffer from a stingy heart. Sharnock again writing here says, God is too rich to have any cause to envy. And He is too good to have a will that will envy. Friends, I don't know if you've interacted with Christians who when they see an individual sinning, they kind of have this, huh, I would never sin like that kind of an attitude. Or they have an attitude of, boy, I'm going to just stand over here and glory in the reality that God's probably going to pour His judgment out on that person. And I tell you when we behave that way as Christians that we are being stingy with the grace of God and believing that God actually can redeem someone who has walked far from Him. And we also display in that moment a lack of understanding for the goodness of God. That our God really is benevolent and pours out His goodness upon His people, not because of anything good in them, but simply because He alone is good. Goodness is not something that He does. It is something that He is. You'll remember in Matthew chapter 19 these words, And behold, a man came to Him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And He said to him, Why do you ask Me about what is good? There is only one who is good. He's really pressing in there to the question about our own goodness, you have none. In comparison to the goodness of God, we are absolutely bankrupt. And then he says, but there's only one who is good, and that is the triune God. So let's move on here and consider His mercy and His grace, His aspects. It's just a glimpse into the goodness of God. It's interesting if we note that in Exodus chapter 33, when, when, when God says to Moses, after Moses says, show me your glory, and he says, I will make my goodness pass before you, that he goes on then to say, I will show mercy upon whom I will show mercy. It's interesting to note the meaning of the word mercy there in its context. And we'll get there in just a second. I think that mercy and grace are often poorly defined and misunderstood. The word mercy here is translated in many different ways. But it's most interesting that I think if we looked at a Hebrew lexicon, which Dion's probably doing right now, um, I'm just waiting for the day he calls me out for being wrong. Um, the, the, the word here for mercy is a closely related term to the word that is used for a mother's womb. 
The idea that is conveyed then is one of compassion being shown to a child by its mother in carrying it along or by its father in, in, in bearing with it in its weakness. Remember the words of Isaiah 49, verse 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget. A, a, a mother who loves her child well may fail. And God says, yet I will never forget you. That is a demonstration of the mercy of God. That God is merciful means that He is not insensitive to us in our weakness and in our trouble, but He responds to our misery with absolute compassion. That He knows we are but dust, which is what the author of Psalm 103 writes, as a father shows compassion, and this word compassion is the same word that is translated mercy uh, in Exodus 33. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. For He knows our frame. He remembers that we are but dust. Or in Lamentations chapter 3, you'll remember these words. The steadfast love of our God never ceases. His mercy mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Richard Sibbs commented, everything that comes from God to His children is a mercy. It is, as it were, dipped in mercy before it comes to us. Everything we receive is mercy. Every good we enjoy and every sorrow we avoid is the mercy of God. Sibs adds, there is not more light in the sun than the, uh, there is not more water in the sea than there is mercy in the Father of mercies. It is His nature. It is who He is. God carries us along the way that a mother does His child. He bears with us in our weakness. He makes sure that what He has conceived from the beginning is carried along throughout history to the perfect culmination of redemption. Why is it that when we come to the nation of Israel being set free from bondage and captivity, have been led by Moses himself, and there is Aaron, and they rebel against God and they engage in idolatry, why is it that God in that moment does not pour out His wrath upon the nation? Was it because Moses knew how to pray? Maybe he was just given a good old charismatic prayer language and he could stay the hand of God. Now I want to encourage you this morning that... That Moses was used as an instrument, and I don't ever want to undermine the reality that when the people of God are moved by the Spirit of God to pray for the people of God, that something serious is going on. But that is not the underlying motive of why the nation of Israel still exists to this day. The reason that God showed mercy was because in that one nation was the plan of redemption going to be completed. All of the redeemed would be redeemed through one who would come by way of this nation. The reason that the people continued 
and were not extinguished in the wrath of God was only because our God has a merciful, sovereign plan. And He works it out here. Friends, I think this is much analogous to the greater picture of mercy that we find to this question uh, that is often that, that is posed in Second Peter chapter three. Uh, the, the question, really, in the framework of Second Peter chapter three, is why why hasn't Jesus returned? Why hasn't he come back? Why is he delaying his coming? Well, why doesn't he show up and show us mercy in the way we want it right now? And Peter writes in verses eight and nine. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any would perish, but that all would reach such repentance. When God looks down the tunnel of time, there are some who say God is just waiting breathlessly, hoping that people will raise their hand, walk down an aisle, fill out a card to become a Christian. God would have to wait eternally for that to happen on man's own accord. When God looks down the tunnel of time, He does not see a bunch of people raising their hands. He sees people that John has to admonish to flee from idolatry. But at the end of that tunnel is a church that He has set His love upon from the foundation of the world. And He is bringing to completion an exhibition of His, his mercy for His glory. He is like a woman who is pregnant with a child. He is holding the church in His hand all throughout redemption. And He will bring to pass the redemption of those whom He intends to save. That is what mercy is. Mercy is what we've received because God is compassionate to you and I. And you might ask the question, why? And the answer is, I don't know other than the glory of God. Marvel, church, at the mercy of Almighty God. The, the, the fact that, friends, we can't make it through an election cycle. I can't. Without losing my mind with just one segment, one, one, one nation of humanity. And God has been delaying the pouring out of His wrath for years. Why? Because He sees through time and He understands the world for which He died and which He will redeem and He will not lose one that belongs to Him. Amen. Isn't that a joy? But we know that we can then waste patiently on the mercy of God. But again, I think far too often mercy and grace are narrowly defined. I was, I was brought up through my college academics. And I, the more that I, I'm thankful uh, for that time. But the more I learned, the more I realized that was just a starting place when it comes to considering who God is. Mercy and grace being narrowly defined are often uh, in our generation and for generations here have been defined this way, that grace is giving people what they don't deserve. Mercy is not giving people what they do deserve. I'm going to argue that those things may be, that that, that may be an okay definition, but it, it only captures a narrow part of what's going on, not the breadth of mercy and grace. Mercy is not something withheld. Mercy is compassion bestowed by a loving God. Matthew chapter 9, verse 
27 through 30. And Jesus passed on from there. uh, Two blind men followed Him, crying out, Have mercy on us, Son of David. And when He entered the house, the blind men came to Him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to Him, Yes, Lord. Then He touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, may it be done to you. And their eyes were opened. Mercy isn't something just withheld from us. Mercy is God giving us eyes to see. And some might argue, well, there the the mercy is given because of the faith. Okay, well, where does the faith come from? The answer is the faith is mercy. And it's given by the hand of God. John Calvin said that when God's laws... When God's law shows us our sin, our guilt, and the threat of eternal wrath, the threat of eternal death, then we are, then and only then are we prepared to flee to God's mercy alone as the only place for safety. The mercy of God often comes to the children of God when He opens our eyes to the fact that we deserve wrath and we run to Him. That is a mercy. And let's look at grace. Grace uh, and mercy are almost interchangeable. Graciousness means exercising unmerited favor and kindness to someone. Mercy shows uh, a kindness to someone who is in need. The idea of mercy pictures in the object of mercy a need, a a destitution, an individual who has no way to ultimately provide for themselves. So mercy paints us as those who have absolutely nothing. Grace stresses unmerited generosity to someone whom the giver owes nothing. So in mercy, we are pictured as being poor. And in grace, God is pictured as being the one who meets the the need of our poverty, all the while acknowledging that He owes us absolutely nothing. One set of definitions then ultimately focuses on what we can get and the other one focuses on who we are in relation to who God is. Friends, we need to get this through our minds if we're going to understand the goodness of God. We are impoverished people who are owed nothing. When Adam sinned, he made the whole human race spiritually poor. And in that, God owes us nothing. Thank goodness then for the grace and the mercy of Almighty God. Grace is God's favor that He shows to those whom He knows and He forgives. And He does this again by revealing Himself to us. For the Apostle, grace was not merely a favorable... A lot of times people speak of of monarchs in the sense of your grace. Or they speak of a social disposition that an individual is gracious because they're long-suffering and they're kind in their disposition toward other sinners. But here, for the Apostle, grace was not merely a favorable attitude on God's part, but His loving purpose and active power to save sinners through Christ that He intended to before the foundation of the world. God's grace is a free gift in Romans chapter 3. It reigns like a victorious king in Romans chapter 
chapter 5, and it trains God's children like a righteous father in in Titus chapter 2. His goodness is his moral excellence in all that he uh, is and all that he does. And so when we come to the plan of redemption and we find Jesus saying that many will go in the way of destruction and few will come to salvation, I want you to for a second then consider this question. Well, if God is the one who saves everyone, if it's ultimately His will and His power alone that saves, why doesn't He save everyone? Because of His goodness. And if you have a problem with that, it is your mind that is warped, not God. Now I want to lay before you the climax of His goodness. But before we get there, I want you to be reminded of the context leading up to our our Savior's suffering, which we will find is the fullness of the goodness of God. In Luke chapter 22... We remember Jesus going to pray before the Father, knowing the agony that He would experience on the cross. And He withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and He knelt down praying and prayed, saying, Father, if You are willing, remove this cup from Me. That is the cup of God's wrath. But He goes on, Nevertheless, not My will, but Yours be done. And there appeared to Him an angel from heaven, strengthening Him. And being in agony, He prayed more earnestly, and His sweat became like great drops of blood falling down on the ground. And then He was delivered over into the hands of sinners for Your deliverance and for Mine. And He was beaten, He was mocked, He was spat upon. And in a moment, as Christ is there hanging on a cross to pay the penalty of your sin and the penalty of my sin, God the Father did something that consummated our salvation in those who trust on Christ. And that something that consummated the plan of redemption is that He poured His good wrath out upon His Son. And do you remember what Jesus said in that moment? Now think about it for a second. This was the wrath that Israel deserved for their idolatry in Exodus chapter 32. The sin isn't going to go unpunished. It's the wrath, Brian, that you deserve. It's the wrath, Bill, Vicky, that you deserve as much as I love you. Blaine, Cynthia... The Nulls, all of us in here, we all deserve, I know that I deserve the wrath of God. And this wrath, instead of being poured out on us, who are culpable, moral recipients of that wrath, is instead poured out upon the Son. And in that moment, in that ninth hour, Jesus cried in Matthew chapter 27, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? There is nothing better. This is good. This is God displaying His moral excellence. The reality in that threefold diamond 
One of His mercy and grace and patience and love, but also His justice and righteousness. And then finally, that His will to be worshipped will come to pass. And it is found there as Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But I want you to see the fullness of this goodness. I want you to consider the goodness of God in one of those words translated in the English, the, the word why. Why the why? Is it, it was, was it because Jesus was bereft of knowledge? Was He really asking in that moment of His suffering, God, I need some information here. Why am I on this cross? And why is this wrath coming to me? Is this a, a plea for cerebral knowledge? And the answer to that is no, because we can look at John chapter 18 before he gets to the cross, and Jesus here is declared as being one who knows everything that's going to happen to him. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to his captors, Who is it that you seek? Jesus is asking them who they're seeking. He knows the answer. It's him. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth, and Jesus said to them, I am he. And it's from that point on that he is taken in a mock trial and foolishly put to death by the hands of sinners. Jesus knew why the wrath was being poured out. He didn't, he didn't say why to ask a question. He's saying why to beg us to ask that question. And He is saying, why have You forsaken Me? In a way primarily to declare to us the goodness of the Father. So let's learn the three reasons why the why. One, because Jesus here is fulfilling, He's using the words of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? And this afternoon you are welcome. I encourage you to read all of Psalm 22 and see that it is a picture of the work that Christ would do on behalf of those who would call upon His name. And what we learn in that reality is that Jesus is telling us in this question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is positively communicating that he is fulfilling all of Scripture. That he is doing what is necessary for our redemption. That the entire Bible points to Jesus. The Bible is not a story of self-help so that you can save yourself. The Bible is a grand narrative that declares Jesus alone saves his bride the church. Secondly, Jesus asks the why that we would see that He is really bearing real sins. Again, the Israelites in this suffering of Christ have payment for their idolatry. And, and we who are gathered here today in the name of Christ can rejoice knowing that in His suffering as the wrath of God was poured out upon Him, that we have an atonement and that our idolatry really has been paid for. He is really bearing the sins of His people. This is... This is real suffering for real sin. This is not hypothetical suffering for theologians to argue about. This is a true atonement for those who would call upon the name of the Lord. That is the goodness of God. And finally, 
we find here that in this real agony, in the moments where we wonder how in the world can God continue to love us, we can rest assured it is because of the sufferings of His Son for our idolatry was absolute. This is not a way, rather, when He cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is not a way of gaining information. It is a way of expressing true abandonment. And here we see Jesus, the Holy One, who took our place. Jesus here had agreed to this wrath being poured out upon Him before the foundation of the world. Piper says of this moment that the moment was agony, not theological curiosity. And Jesus is, is declaring that before us, that He really, genuinely suffered. Jesus is saying, I really have absorbed all of the wrath of the Father for everyone who is poor in spirit. Jesus is saying to us in that word, why? He's saying when John comes along and writes to you that if you sin, you have an advocate at the right hand of God the Father, believe Him because I have absorbed all of the, the wrath that is due your idolatry. That is the goodness of God. But somebody's going to ask, and they have for a couple generations now, foolishly, can a good God pour out wrath on an innocent person. We should all rejoice that he did one time. John Owen said, the Father, the, the answer to this question of, of but, but if, if God is eternally pleased with the Son, then how can he, he, how can he pour out his wrath on the Son? Some call that cosmic child abuse, abuse. They should read John Owen. He says, the Father was always well pleased with the holiness of Christ's person. The excellency and perfections of His, his righteousness and the sweetness of His obedience. But He was displeased with the sins that were charged to Jesus. And therefore it pleased Him to bruise Him and to put Him to grief with whom He was always pleased. You never have to bear the wrath of God, beloved. You deserve it, but Christ has taken it away. In this moment of agony, Jesus was declaring to us that we have received the greater portion of good. Rather provocative statement that I read, but I agree with it, and so I'll tell you now that as Jesus took the wrath that that we justly deserve, we have to ask ourselves this question. In that moment, the fullness of good is on display in the cross in the person and the work of Christ. Remember, the fullness of glory dwells in the person of Christ and in His work. But in that moment, as the wrath of God is poured out upon Jesus, who is it that receives the greater good? Jesus or His bride, the church? And the answer is, we do. In the moment that God pours His wrath out upon His Son, it is the church that receives the greater good. By His goodness and for His glory, we received in that moment the greater good. Let that thought, beloved, let that thought that Jesus, the One who lived righteously, perfectly, doing the will of God, abstaining from the things of evil, and conquering sin and death, that it was He who bore the wrath of God in our place and gave us His goodness in that moment. 
Let that annihilate all of your idols. Let that, when John says, little children, keep yourself from idols, don't hear John saying, you can keep yourself from idols in your own strength. Hear John saying to you, look to heaven and know that as you rejoice in what Jesus has done by taking the penalty of your sin, that can be the motivation for killing the idols that control you. God's wrath on His Son was so intense, beloved, that it would have sunk millions of worlds of sinful men and angels. The Father forsook His Son then for a moment in order that the Father would never forsake us. And that's a promise that Jesus Himself never received. As Jesus came, in the Godhead there was this knowledge, will you forsake me? For a moment. But for the church, the answer is, I will never leave you or forsake you. Let that fill your heart and mind with true worship. The Holy One of God was declared at Calvary to be unholy so that unholy creatures like us might be declared holy as Christ actually is. You see, friends, we struggle, I think, to see God's goodness because we want to see God's goodness the way we want it. We want God to be good in filling our bank account and giving us a little bit more energy on Sunday morning or giving us the greater spiritual gift that we haven't gotten and and, and that we so long for to use for really our glory and not His. Uh, We look for God's goodness in the benefits, but beloved, I want you to know this, His goodness resides in His moral character, in who He actually is. So often it is that we mere mortals misunderstand the goodness of God, and it's I'll probably continue to find ways to drag C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia into this conversation, and I won't be sorry about it. Maybe this will be helpful for the little ones. You'll remember Susan, the one that I used last week, who was getting on a train. Uh, Well, when she comes to Narnia... She doesn't know that Aslan, the Christ type in that narrative, is a lion. She thinks he's a man. That's a little startling. If you think something's a man and it turns out to be a lion, that'll change your perspective. This is what Lewis writes in his narrative. Aslan is a lion? The lion, the great lion? Oh, said, uh, said Susan. I thought that he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And that is our God. Of course he's not safe. Don't look for the goodness of God in the way that you would perceive it. Look for it in the atoning sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ and hear Him cry. Why have you forsaken me so that we never will be? Little children, keep yourselves from idols because the goodness of God is ever before us. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come in your presence knowing that you are good, acknowledging that our heart often grumbles and doesn't perceive your goodness. 
Might we look long into the text? Might you give us a hunger for your word that we would see your goodness and that we would delight in it? Father, help us to lay down our religious idols and our platitudes and all of the foolish thinking that we have so quickly picked up that we would see your goodness. Father, might we be a church who's willing to stand where you declare your goodness. Might we take you at your word And when our feelings say that's not good, but Your Word is against it, let us rest in Your Word, not in our feelings. Father, might we be a church that heralds the reality that You are our sovereign King. And the only reason why we have received mercy and grace is because You are good. That there is no goodness in us. Father, if there's one here today that doesn't know You and has never turned to You in repentant faith, would You do what only You can do and heap mercy upon them by showing them their sin and rebellion against Your holiness that they might run to Christ for forgiveness and grace. Father, would You take our worship now at this time as we rejoice in Your mercy and Your grace and Your justice and Your righteousness. Might we worship not foolishly, and not only externally, but in spirit and in truth. In Christ's name, amen. If you would stand, we'll sing about that amazing grace. Thank you.